kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. I want to read two passages, the first from Acts chapter 1 and the second from Acts chapter 28. Acts 1 verses 1 through 3. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God." Then Acts 28, 31 through 34, the last two verses of the book of Acts. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. In our introduction to the book of Acts, given quite a while ago now, and our exegesis of Acts 1 and verse 3, given in episode 2 of this podcast, we concluded that the establishment and increase of the kingdom of heaven on earth is the overarching and superintending theme of the book of Acts. All of the content selected by Luke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was to undergird and support this major premise, that Jesus established the reign of God over the earth and that he presently exercises rule and authority unsurpassed and unequaled by any other force or power, and that his rule is destined to fill the earth according to God's eternal purpose. This today will by no means be an exhaustive or conclusive presentation. There's much to say about the history of eschatological views and about the various issues relating to eschatology that sits far outside our scope here. My purpose is simply to explain what I believe about the phrase, the kingdom of God, and how the idea it represents functions in Christian theology. In the New Testament, the word kingdom is translated from the Greek basileia. Normally, this word has four shades of meaning, rank, rule, realm, and reign. Sometimes basileia refers to the rank of a person, that is, the power, the dignity, or majesty, or privilege, or right of authority to exercise force over others. In Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27, Jesus told a parable about a certain nobleman who went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. This was in reference to a practice under the Roman imperial system in which a local ruler would journey to receive certification of his right to govern or of his rank from the Caesar, who owned all the world, so that he could come back and exercise ruling authority over that given territory. The other three uses of the term basileia relate to this one. Sometimes it refers to a rule, that is, to the practical exercise of authority or the exertion of dominion over subjugated peoples. 
In Luke chapter 1 and verse 33, the angel announced that Jesus would reign over his people. He would subjugate them and give them instruction and direct them and lead them by his majestic word. In this case, those who have been subjugated are said to be under the feet of the one who is ruling, which is a very important phrase we'll come back to shortly. Additionally, Basileia may refer to a realm. Now, under the heading of realm, two ideas are present. First, there is the region, domain, or country governed by a king. In Esther 5 and verse 6, the king offered Esther up to half of his kingdom, that is, the territories over which he ruled. In Matthew 4 and verse 8, Satan took Jesus up on a high mountain and in an instant showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. That is, the devil showed Jesus the vast territories of human rulers with their riches and resources. But second, there is the people who inhabit that realm and submit themselves to the king's authority. When God told Israel that they would be to him a kingdom, Exodus 19.6, this was the meaning. They would be his people in his world. Finally, the word may refer to a reign, that is, the duration or period of time when a particular sovereign is in power. So we speak of the reign of King George I, which commenced with his coronation and concluded with his death. This is very important because modern English readers might be inclined to always interpret the phrase kingdom of God as a territory or a place where God rules. Sometimes they might think of it as heaven itself. To my knowledge, the phrase never carries that meaning, and the idea of a place or a territory altogether is not the only nuance of meaning in the term, and in some cases it's not the focus at all. For example, when John the baptizer and the Lord Jesus announced that the kingdom of heaven was at hand or drawing near, they did not mean that a place or territory was getting close. That would be rather nonsensical. Rather, they meant that the time when heaven would rule over the earth was approaching and was about to begin. We should emphasize that even when one of these shades of meaning is in view, the other aspects are present because they are all codependent. One cannot be a ruler unless he has a rank and a realm, both the territory and peoples, and unless the official and recognized time for his reign has begun and not yet ended. All of this is explored in the book of Acts as it relates to Jesus. How does Jesus rule? How did he acquire the authority to rule? Who are his subjects? What is the territory of his sovereignty? How will his rule increase, and how far will it ultimately reach? When did his rule begin, and how long will it last? In this study, I want to give some proposed answers to these questions. However, to begin, I want to consider how the concept of the kingdom of God is in many respects not merely the theme of the book of Acts, but the great overarching theme of the whole Bible. The Bible begins with the narrative of creation, the story of how the universe came into being and how God judged it very good, Genesis 1.31, because all things were functioning according to his rule as its creator. Quickly, the Bible proceeds to the narrative of corruption, the story of how the universe came to be as it now is, 
with all of its flaws and imperfections, because God's rule was abandoned by certain of his creatures. From there, the Bible continues with the long narrative of correction, the story of how God moved to right all the wrongs that permeate the present order of things by bringing wayward creatures back into his good pleasure, by restoring them to his rule, and annihilating everything that is unruly. Finally, the Bible concludes with a vision of completion, the future story of when all things are made very good in God's sight again, perfectly submitted to his rule once more and forever, Revelation 22, 1-5. Jesus of Nazareth is the star of this story. He is the central character, the one in whom and through whom and by whom God is accomplishing this great work. The phrase, kingdom of God, or the alternative kingdom of heaven, really refers to the work of Christ to renovate this fallen system into harmony with that sublime and perfect one in which God dwells. So Jesus said that we ought to pray, your kingdom come. And then he further explained what that prayer means. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6 and verse 10. Jesus Christ rules over all who willfully submit to God. That includes the angels and the sainted dead, according to 1 Peter 3.22 and Luke 13.28. He furthermore rules over all that is under God's authority without the exercise of personal will, including innocent children and the lower creation, animals and things in the natural world, Matthew 19.14 and 1 Chronicles 29, 11-12. However, the most striking and astonishing feature of the Bible story is that through Christ's work, He has made a way that rebellious creatures who deserve death and destruction may be redeemed back to God's rule and good favor. And this last class makes up the church, or the congregation of Christ, Acts 2, 41-47, and Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Earlier, we noted that the word kingdom may refer to the realm of a king, that is, the king's territories and the people who dwell there who submit to his rule. The territory of Jesus is the entire universe, according to his own testimony. He was given all authority in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, 18. The Apostle Paul says, visible and invisible, Colossians 1, 16-20. But not all the inhabitants of that territory are in subjection to him. There are rebels in this world. In heaven, those who are subjects of King Jesus are the sainted dead and the holy angels. On earth, the subjects of King Jesus include creation, infants and those who are like infants, and the church. The Bible is not primarily interested with the rule of Jesus over angels or the righteous dead or infants or the lower creation, and it discusses those things very little, if at all. But the major focus of Scripture is the redeeming reign of Jesus over sinners, how Jesus is putting down the rebellion and restoring creation back to the authority of God. Now, this redeeming reign is exercised by four major principles. First, the conversion of the lost— Second, the transformation of the saved into the image of Jesus Christ. 
Third, the unity of believers. And fourth, the increase of the knowledge of God. As these things increase, the church increases, and the kingdom of God fills the earth more and more. The conversion of the lost involves the preaching of the gospel, that is, the proclamation of the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and reign of Christ. Faith in Jesus, submission to Jesus through repentance and baptism, and justification by the pardon of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit are the responses to this preaching and the blessings that follow it. The transformation of the saved into the image of Christ involves the lifelong process of being led by the Spirit of God, to use the favored language of the Apostle Paul. And this means to put off rebellious character traits and behaviors and to put on a new kind of character and lifestyle in imitation to the perfect example of Jesus himself. This takes place through the progressive mortification of the flesh, the overcoming of fleshly passions as the guiding principle of life, and submission to the teachings of the Spirit of God as they are revealed in the Word of God. The unity of believers refers to the increasing oneness of heart and mind and the supernatural Christ-like love and charity that binds all followers of Christ together into a brotherhood by their increasing apprehension of Christ-like character and the truth of Christ as revealed in the Apostles' teachings. The pattern of apostolic teaching is the perfect ideal that creates increasing unity among all those who grow into it and submit themselves to it. It includes both instructions and theological propositions, and it is contained at this time in the New Testament scriptures and their illumination of the more ancient scriptures given to Israel. Finally, the knowledge of God refers to the understanding of God's self-revelation, which results in a fuller grasp of His glory and majesty. It is the result of biblical exegesis and teaching and participation in worship and in all aspects of the life of the church, which God has designed for the edification of His people. Each of these four principles are mutually codependent and supportive to one another. Jesus received the right and power to accomplish this work and exercise this rule from God the Father because of His work in giving His life on the cross. When He died for our sins and was raised up to live again, He received, because of His submissive death, a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. The Bible says that His reign was inaugurated when triumphant over sin, death, and Satan, He returned to heaven at His ascension, and He was told by God in Psalm 110, verse 1, and Acts 2, 34-35, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 24-26, He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy which will be destroyed is death at His coming. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when He puts an end to all rule 
and all authority and power. These verses are extremely significant regarding the reign of Christ and the reach of his dominion. Christ's reign began formally on earth when he poured out the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost after his resurrection to signify that God had made him King of kings and Lord of lords. His redeeming reign is manifest in the church, his people whom he has brought out of the world and purchased for himself with his own blood. But it is not merely the existence of the church, but the growth of the church that manifests the reign of Christ. Those who are in the church must grow up into him, Ephesians 4.15, until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, Ephesians 4.13. You might hear in all those expressions those four principles of the kingdom that we considered a moment ago. And this process is called the growth of the body in Ephesians 4.16. Furthermore, the church itself must grow and expand to include all creatures of all nations in all the world. Matthew 28.18-20 and Mark 16.15-16. The nations come into the kingdom of God, the church, by their repentance, conversion, and the blotting out of their sins, so that seasons of refreshing and restoration may come to all things. Acts 3, 19-21. In that text, the Apostle Peter states very plainly that if one will repent and be converted, so that his sins will be blotted out, and times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, then he is contributing to that great end, when God will send Jesus whom the heavens must receive until the time of the restoration of all things. When we put this concept together with the other scriptures we've considered, we find that the restoration of all things refers to all enemies being put under Christ's feet. That is the absolute victory of his conquest through the Great Commission. Then the earth shall be full of the knowledge and glory of the Lord as the waters that cover the sea. Isaiah 11 and verse 9. He must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. There is an historical drama, a narrative, a story that must be lived out and unfolded according to God's sovereign purpose before the conclusion of the reign of King Jesus. The story is triumphant, jubilant, and glorious. It ends in the final and absolute defeat of Satan and all who oppose themselves against the Lord and his Christ, and the exaltation and eternal glory of all those who bow their knees to him and confess that he is Lord. This is the kingdom of God, the rule of God, coming down from heaven in Christ and reclaiming the universe for his glory. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at tulsachurchofchrist at gmail.com or visit tulsachurchofchrist.com. From all the dark places of earth's heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation. Come over and help us, they cry. 
The kingdom is spreading, oh tell ye the story, God's better exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.